good to have you here. Um, and good to be here in person, as Ash said. My name's James, and uh, I'm part of the team here at City Church. And if you've got a Bible with you, then uh, can I ask you to uh, turn to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. Uh, the words are going to appear on the screen. Um, and we're going to read uh, a section of the Bible together. Uh, and we're going to read three scenes three different scenes that we find in Mark chapter 10 uh, and Jesus' interactions with different people. Uh, and then we're going to look at what was going on in those scenes and then what it means for us here in 21st century Bristol. Um, and so well, let's, we're going to pick up the story in uh, verse 32. Verse 32 of chapter 10. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. That's Jesus' disciples, Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. So there's lots of people heading to Jerusalem. Again, he took the 12 disciples aside and told them what was going to happen. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Exactly. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered, and Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. 
The theme for this morning is serving, and I've called this talk The Way of Jesus, and you're going to have an opportunity at the end to find out how you can play your part here at City Church. And if you're new or you've recently started coming, you don't need to wait around. The best way to get to know people is to serve, is to get to know people, it's to join community and play your part together. Equally, you may just be visiting and you're, you're coming and you're supporting the Hobbs and the Triggs and you're so welcome here this morning and uh, perhaps there might be something that I say that might interest you, it might even speak to you at a deeper level, but let me ask you this, do you ever have those moments of remembering what life was like before the smartphone? I mean, some of you don't remember that, and that's worrying because you were born in the year 2000. But there was a life before the smartphone, and I know uh, uh, we have fiber optic broadband and 4G, and so everything is very quick to access. Uh, and, uh, but I don't know if it's because I've turned 30 this year, and so I'm getting more nostalgic about things. Uh, and so as you get older, you start to remember that there was a life before technology or a life before uh, the smartphone, and one of those areas uh, that I particularly appreciate, one of the apps on my phone that I particularly appreciate is Google Maps. Man, what would I do without Google Maps uh, on my phone? It's probably the most used app, uh, and uh, I just follow where it tells me, uh, and it generally gets me where I need to be. Sometimes it does say I need to go on three different motorways to get to the other side of Bristol, but on the whole, it's very helpful. Uh, and uh, recently I had one of those situations uh, where there was no phone signal, there was no 4G, there was no GPS, and yes, I was in Wales. And uh, we were on holiday in the north of Wales, in Anglesey, and uh, I decided I'd, take, I'd taken my road bike and I was going to go for a ride. And I thought I would just take my phone, I'd planned the route out, but I thought I'd just take my phone in my back pocket just to make sure that if I did get lost, I'd find my way back. And uh, I did well, actually. At first hour or so, was doing pretty well. Managed to remember the right turns, looking at the landmarks, general sense of where I needed to get back to. And then there was this moment where I realized I am actually completely lost. <laughs> I have no idea where I am right now. I thought I was doing well and I was completely lost. And so I thought, thank goodness for that. I brought my phone. What a legend. Uh, so I get it out and I, and I look at Google Maps to find out where I am. And there is no 4G. There is no GPS. There is no single signal. I am in a black hole in Wales and I don't really know where I am. And uh, at that moment, I realized what I needed to do. I needed to ask someone for directions. <laughs> it's this thing that we used to do before smartphones that was very familiar to us, but now we don't really do it. Uh, and so I thought, right, well, I can see there's a village in the distance. I'm going to go to the village and I'm going to find someone uh, to generally try and point me in the right direction. And you can guarantee that the one person you ask for directions has never left the village. 
They, they have no idea where you need to go. And so he's thinking, you know, you know I'm not going to try and do a Welsh accent, but you, know, you might need to go over that way, or I think you need to head back to the sea. And I was like, that is definitely not the right way to go. Uh, and so you have this awkward standoff, don't you, where you, you receive the directions, you know they're wrong, and what do you do in that moment? Do you kind of be polite to the person and go, okay, I'll go back to the sea, or do you just pedal hard and ignore the shouting? Well, I pedaled hard, I managed to find my way back onto the route, and got myself home. And the knowing the right way is helpful. Knowing the right way, knowing the direction is really helpful. Knowing some key markers to show you where you are. Have you gone too far? Keeping the landmarks to try and work out where on the island where I was, whereabouts you are. And this morning we're going to uh, spend some time thinking about the way of Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, knowing the way, in fact, knowing his way is so important when it comes to being a disciple, following Jesus. And so this morning we're going to spend a few minutes looking at these three scenes in Mark chapter 10. And we see that Mark, the big idea in this gospel account of Mark, is the way. He uses the word way so many times. And so he's trying to grab our attention. There is a way, there is a direction that you can live, you can go, that helps you to follow Jesus. And so my prayer is that as we look at this way, the way of Jesus, that it would change the way we live for God and change the way we live for each other. So let's start with scene one. So Jesus and his disciples... Uh, and those, the tagalongs that were joining him, that were following him, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're on their way. Very deliberate words by Mark. Not on the road, but they're on the way. There's something of following Jesus that Mark is trying to get to us. Even in the very practical thing of walking, there is a way. And they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. In fact, the followers were afraid. And you have to ask, what, like, what was so astonishing about this? I mean, Jesus did a lot of walking. There was a lot of walking going on in that time. This wasn't abnormal, following Jesus around. But they were astonished, and some of them were even afraid. What was so crazy about Jesus walking? And the astonishing and perhaps scary thing about Jesus leading the way in this instance was that he was walking to Jerusalem. It was the destination that was so astonishing. You see, Jerusalem had become so dangerous for Jesus. He had ruffled the feathers of the authorities there, with the religious leaders. They didn't like him. In fact, they were out for his blood, and it had forced him to leave Jerusalem and any kind of, they, I mean, the Romans were very fearful of a, a revolution happening, and they had made out Jesus to be the head of this revolution, and so they needed to bring him down, even if it meant killing him. And yet here we see in scene one that Jesus is leading the way. It's not that he's having to be persuaded to go. He is at the front. Leading, you can just imagine him striding ahead, not really bothered about what else is going on behind him. He just needs to know. He needs to get to Jerusalem. He had this steely determination that must have been quite frightening. The disciples and those who followed knew that this was dangerous. And yet there he is leading 
the way. And you know when someone is so focused on something that you don't dare interrupt them in case they you know, rip your arm off or whatever. There's that kind of tension going on. Does Jesus know what he's doing? It's so dangerous to go back. Why is he so intent on getting to Jerusalem? Does he know what is waiting for him? And no doubt knowing the fear and astonishment of those who are following him, Jesus takes them all to one side and says, and explains what is going to happen to him, which I don't know that would have helped. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we know that's exactly the reason why we're afraid, because Jesus went on to explain what would happen to him, that he would be killed, he would be tortured, but that on the third day he would rise from the dead. It's what we've been singing about this morning. His purpose was to defeat sin and death forever, but to do that he had to sacrifice himself in humble surrender, to be put to death on the cross, to to take the punishment of sin on himself. In another part of the Bible, it says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. The way of Jesus was taking him into life-threatening danger. But rather than fleeing, Jesus both with determination and boldness, but also with service and surrender, gave himself up for humanity. He demonstrated, probably in the most extreme way possible, what it looks like to serve, to to lay your life down for others. And so he's striding towards Jerusalem, knowing what was going to face him, but sacrificing himself. So on one level, the disciples and those who are following are afraid for Jesus and what's going to happen to him, but on another level, people are people, and they're also worried for themselves, aren't they? They're they're afraid for their own lives. I'm sure when they realized that they were going back, that they would realize that they had some kind of association with Jesus. What would it mean for us? If they're worried about a revolution, we're going to get criminalized too. We're going to receive punishment too. And the question that they had to ask themselves was, were they, were they also prepared to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to potentially lay their lives down for him, for what they had come to believe? And they had a very real decision to make. Were they going to follow Jesus, knowing that it could lead to sacrifice service and surrender, or go their own way? And the same question can be asked of us. What way are you going? Who are you serving? Are you out for yourself, or are you following Jesus without any thought about what that could mean for you? And the way of Jesus is not meant to be safe. It's quite safe in here. But it doesn't mean that God always presents us with the easy options. It can often strike fear in us, can't it? Trying to work out the right way. We can be fearful or it can challenge our social structures of convenience and safety that we kind of build around us. But Jesus strode towards sacrifice and service for the benefit of others. And ultimately, that led to his life 
being laid down for those that would believe in him. You see, the Bible says that to go your own way ultimately leads to death without any hope or future. And Jesus is challenging the group that are following him. He's challenging them about, do you really want to follow me? But he's also speaking to us now. He's also speaking to us now. Which way are you going to go? Are you going to take the way of the servant, or are you going to go your own way? And like I said, the, the way of Jesus is a big theme in Mark, but the other major theme in this book is, is the suffering servant. And he comes at it time and time again that Jesus, whilst being king and lord over everything, is also a suffering servant of sacrifice and surrender. And he models that and he demonstrates that like no other human has ever done before. Henry Nguyen said this. He said, The way of the Christian leader is not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility ending on the cross. Jesus' vision for maturity, his, his vision for your life is not about convenience. It's not about what you can get out of life, but rather it is laying your life down for his glory and for the benefit of others. Jesus, for his own glory, strode out towards Jerusalem to his own death so that those who would put their faith in him, who would trust him, would have life. And he gave himself up for you and for me. And if that is not motivation enough for us as a community to want to serve him, then I'm not sure what else there is, to be honest. And yet, the disciples in scene two, when we zoom in on the conversation in scene two, in verse 35, James and John they missed the point completely. They missed the point completely. They come up with a, quite a brash statement, don't they? They come up to Jesus and they say, we want you to do whatever we ask. It's just not good advice, isn't it? And yet that's what they come to. And Jesus, very humbly, says, what, what can I do for you? Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Just firstly, amazing servanthood. What can I do for you? In his head, he's thinking, bonkers. What, what on earth? I've just explained that I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and you want me to do something for you. But he, he goes with it, and then he says, you don't know what you are asking when they ask if they can sit at his right hand and his left hand. You know, James and, and John, in this conversation, have gone completely the wrong way. They are entirely lost. In all they have seen, they've heard the healings, the teaching, the, the feeding of the 5,000, the deliverances, everything, the walking on water. Their request of Jesus is that they want to sit on each side of him in his glory. What did James and John really want? They wanted honor and power and fame. And it's funny because, in some sense, they've kind of understood something about who Jesus is because they, they recognize him as this king with, with power and with glory. And yet, in a much more serious way, they've actually misunderstood the whole thing. 
It's kind of one of those things where they want the spotlight, they want the fame, and they want the power. It's like fame by association. And it's all motivated by selfishness. They want a piece of it for their own ends. And I probably don't need to convince you that the society that we live in is, is full of selfishness and greed and power-hungry. And, and every time we turn on our news feeds and on the telly, politicians fighting over power. And it's really just a battle of egos and one-upmanship and the battle for power and authority. I probably don't need to convince you of that, but perhaps what I do need to convince you of is that same selfishness and greed actually lives in each one of us too. It might not express itself in the same kind of ways, but deep in our hearts, there is something in us that wants the spotlight. If you haven't listened to Ash's talk last week, I recommend you do, and he, he talks about some of that. That in each one of us, we always want to present our best face to people. We want authority over our own lives. And we can easily see it in other people, but we don't always see it in ourselves. It's like a stain or a mark on someone's clothing, and you see them and you, you clock it, and you're like, oh, have they not washed their clothes, or what's happened? Forgetting that there's a huge stain on your own back. I don't know if you've been in that situation. I have a beard, and so I'm always, you know, constantly catching, catching things in your beard, and you make a comment about someone else's thing, and you realize you've got like spaghetti just hanging out of your beard. I'm in no position to point anything out about anyone's appearance when there's spaghetti in my own beard. But we do that. And what does that selfishness and greed do for us? Well, it, it just fuels the fire of, of self-worth and entitlement where we always feel like we deserve better. We're always looking at how we can better our lives, better cars, better houses, a better bank balance, a better, better friends, a better spouse, better holidays. And with each selfish desire, it's like constructing a wall around you that isolates yourself both from God and from people. It's what it does. Every selfish thought, every attempt to better your own life in some material way, any expression of greed and selfishness is like constructing a wall around you where eventually you won't be able to see God and you won't be able to see other people because you're living for yourself. And you're cut off. And so the way to avoid those walls from surrounding us, the way to avoid being consumed by greed and selfishness and entitlement is what Jesus goes on to say in verses 42 to 45. He explains something to the disciples. He explains something to James and John in this instance. And he says this, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Here Jesus is saying, if you want to take a sledgehammer to the walls that you are building around you, if you want to pick up a whopping great big sledgehammer and destroy greed and selfishness and entitlement and this deserving attitude, the way to do that is to serve. It's to serve other people. 
is to get into a position where you are wanting the best for someone else rather than yourself. In, su- in fact, such is the importance of this that Jesus says of himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Even, even the King of Glory came to serve and not be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's another writer in the New Testament called Paul, and he wrote this of Jesus. He said, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus emptied himself. That is true greatness. The way of Jesus is one of sacrifice, and it's one of service. It's not upward mobility like Henry Newman was saying, but it's downward mobility ending on the cross. It's looking to serve people. That is the way of Jesus. And James and John wanted status and power, but they were attempting to travel along the wrong route. But they just couldn't see it, which leads to scene three. And there's this interaction then as they leave uh, they leave uh, where they are and they're heading towards Jer- Jericho. They're in Jericho and they're leaving the city uh, and a blind man was sitting by the road begging and he shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people around are, are rebuking him, telling him to be quiet, but he shouts even louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, hearing him, calls Bartimaeus over and asks exactly the same question as he did to James and John, which is why we know that these stories are to be read together. Mark's trying to grab us here. He's asked, he, he asks them the same question. He says, what do you want me to do for you, Bartimaeus? And Bartimaeus's response and his whole demeanor is amazing because the first thing he shouts for is mercy. Not glory, not fame, not status, not authority. He cries out for mercy. In fact, even the title that Bartimaeus uses, Son of David, is such a loaded title. Bartimaeus knows who Jesus is. So significant. And, and then when Jesus does say, what do you want me to do for you? He calls him an even more personal name, Rabbi. Close friend, teacher, I want to see James and John missed the point. They couldn't see it. His own disciples, the one that had followed Jesus all the time, completely missed the point. They don't see Jesus for who he is. And here is Bartimaeus, physically blind, but spiritually he can see everything. He knows who Jesus is. Son of David, have mercy on me. He knows what he needs in his life. He needs mercy He needs forgiveness. He needs relationship. He needs mercy. Do you know that when we we realize that we, each of us, need mercy, rather than any sense in, in which we deserve anything, that will also take a sledgehammer to our worldly desires. When we have an attitude of, what I need is mercy, That will take a a sledgehammer to the walls that we build around ourselves of entitlement. 
You've probably heard this said before, but grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Our sin, our, our brick walls that we construct, it deserves punishment because we are rebelling against a loving God who can't stand the sight of sin. He wants people to walk in purity as we were initially designed to do. Our rebellion against God, our, our decision to go our own way deserves consequences, but Jesus comes in his mercy and says, I will forgive you. I will take the punishment for your sin on the cross in my death as if I had committed your sin myself. Isn't that remarkable? He goes to the cross and he takes on our sin as if he had committed every wrong thing that we had ever done. And he takes it upon himself on the cross in our place. And when we truly understand that, when we truly see that the right response to that is to come humbly before our God and say, my life is not my own. It's not my own. It belongs to God. The only reason I am standing here today is because of the mercy of God. Because I mess up every day. And yet there is mercy and forgiveness and grace on offer so that I can be part of his family. And the right response is to to say, my life is not my own. And because of that, because of what you've done, I am eternally grateful and thankful. And so my heart's desire is actually I want to serve you, God. You know when someone does something so amazing for you, you just want to give yourself to them because they've, they've, they've either been incredibly generous to you. And it's the same with God. He was incredibly generous in his mercy. And so the right response is to want to serve him. And we see that in, in Bartimaeus's response, because the passage ends with Bartimaeus receiving his sight, and it says, and he followed Jesus along the road. I think there's more to that line than just the fact that Bartimaeus stood up and went on a walk. Because that's not the theme of Mark. Mark is talking about the way of Jesus. And Bartimaeus got up and he followed Jesus along the way. It says something about his lifestyle from that moment that completely changed. You could say he followed the way of Jesus. And you might be here this morning and you need a miracle like Bartimaeus, you might be here this morning and as you've been listening, you've realized that you have been trying to go your own way. You've been trying to better your life as hard as you can and it's just tiring and it never works. And Jesus is coming and saying, I've got mercy for you. I can help you. I can help you find true satisfaction. And we have an opportunity to respond to that. But also, like I said at the beginning, we want to offer opportunities for people to serve. We want to give people an opportunity first to serve God, but also to serve each other. Every Sunday, we have teams of people who give themselves for you guys, for your children, so that this happens right across the city. We have people turning up early to rehearse, to put chairs out. 
People who've been planning for months for material for our children to go out for their kids' work, planning all summer for last Sunday at the start of term. Refreshments. We have things going on in the week. And all these people are doing that because they want to serve God and serve us. And it's amazing. And there's an opportunity for you to play your part in this church too. Whether you're new or whether you've been here for a long time, can I encourage you to serve on a Sunday? It's like taking up the sledgehammer and battering down any sense of pride and entitlement in your life. It's the best thing that you can do. And there's some tables at the back. Ash is going to explain it later, but you can do that today. Let me just finish with this story before we close. Earlier on, I quoted Henry Newen, and he was a uh, Dutch Catholic priest. If you haven't read his book, In the Name of Jesus, go and get it. It's 70 pages. You'll read it in an hour. I'm a slow reader, and I read it in an hour. It's brilliant. And Henry Newen, he, he ended up teaching at Harvard University, taught theology in Harvard University, and, but sensing that he needed to rediscover something of what it meant to serve people in the most basic way, he, he decided he was going to leave that career, and he moved to France, and there's an institute called Le Arche, which is read, led by John Vanier. Uh, and it's a community of people who have complex needs. And Henry Nguyen, he, he sacked it all off. He moved to France to join this community of people to help serve people there. And during that time, Nguyen would still receive invitations to speak at different events. Uh, and uh, on one such trip, it was agreed that a man that he'd been working quite closely with, one of the people, part of the community called Bill, it, would, it was agreed that Bill would get to travel with Henry to, uh, to Washington, D.C., and Bill was seriously excited, never been to that part of the world. He gets to go with Henry to speak at this conference. And Bill is incredibly excited, and it's a wonderful opportunity. And his understanding, Bill's understanding of the invitation, is that he is going to come and deliver a talk in front of all these leadership gurus and priests and ministers in Washington, D.C. And Bill's so excited, he'd go up to Henry and go, we're doing this together, aren't we, Henry? And Henry would be like, politely, yes, yes, Bill, I'm so excited that you can come along with me so that I can deliver this talk. And, and, and Bill, would, he'd, he'd repeatedly say as, the, as it got closer and closer and closer, we're doing this together, aren't we? And Henry realizes is that Bill's understanding of the invitation is slightly different to his own. And Henry thinks, well, what am I going to do about this? And uh, one thing led to another, and Bill did, in fact, share some of his story in front of thousands of church ministers and leaders in Washington. It's an amazing story. But Henry Newman said this. He said, it is I, not Bill, who gets the main benefit from our friendship. And Henry Newman lived out his own words. He lived it out. It's not about upward mobility. It's downward mobility, serving people. Not power hungry, but serving he modeled what it meant to serve and to sacrifice and give for the benefit of others. He could have fed, continued to feed his own ego and, and engage with huge theological debates in Harvard, but he gave it all up to serve people. And I came to this church as a student, however many years ago now, 
uh, uh, 11 years ago and uh, began serving on the worship team not too long after. And it was the way that I got involved and made friends and ended up staying and serving people. And I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, to do the same. Why don't we stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we first and foremost want to ask for mercy. Lord Jesus, we want to ask for mercy because we realize that we have constructed walls around us that separate us from you and separate us from each other. But Jesus, we thank you that you came in your mercy to take those walls down by dying on the cross for us and showing what it meant to lay your life down for others. Lord, I thank you that I have found life in you. And Lord, I want to pray for this church. I want to pray for this site at Cottom and at Bradley Stoke and future sites in the future, that we would be a church that is known for serving one another and serving this wonderful city of Bristol. Lord, I ask that we would be known as people that give ourselves to each other. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.